Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back, everyone, to bonus COVID number five, where we are going to review the latest literature updates. I am starting today because Kurt here is still organizing, finding the right pair of glasses, you know, getting his hearing aids adjusted now that it's his birthday today. What? What? I didn't hear you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Turn it's... the hearing aids. I can't hear a thing. So... Uh, the amount of literature coming out is obviously decreasing a bit, uh, but I think it's interesting that we've still got parts of the country that are actually having increased cases, and I, I happen to notice the some of the numbers, of course, from Arizona going up uh, substantially back to 1,000 cases a day. We're actually slowly drifting down. Yeah, our curve is fading away. But, of course, we're just open stuff up, so what's the delay going to look like? What's it? Who knows? The answer in COVID is always, I don't know. We don't know. And there's, there's, that's right. And you don't look stupid because nobody knows. Nobody knows. All right. So let's start with Monday to June 8th. So I found this interesting it, from the Journal of Criminal Justice. And apparently I am now subscribed to that journal as well. Well, I think there's a reason for that. <laughs> I think once you get out of prison, they start sending that to you, Heather. That's a good one, actually. Um, anyway, so they looked at when stay-at-home orders were implemented in L.A. They did note that police calls for service for burglary and robbery actually went down, but that domestic violence and vehicle theft increased. Similar pattern was also observed in Indianapolis, Indiana, for robbery and domestic calls. And the other thing, which makes sense, because technically nobody was supposed to go anywhere, traffic stops were decreased. Although vehicle theft increased, but traffic stops decreased. So they were really good car mm. sword, car See, I'd, heist. I'd probably... Fast and the Furious. I'd probably take a car just because like the road's so empty. Wow, I should just ride in that fast car. Oh. Because there's nobody on the roads. But like I'm not one sure of those Fast worked. and the Furious cars? Like how Correct. sweet would that be? Yeah. So the roads were wide open. And of course in Minnesota, we had enormous numbers of people during that time going a hundred plus. Uh, and actually, I think they broke records of how many people they pulled over greater than a hundred miles an hour. True really? Story. Yes. You didn't see that in the news. No, I didn't so, actually, but that's interesting. So the next one, uh, Wilson et al. And uh, this is actually in the Journal of Hospital Infection. And they were talked a little bit about the mask use and the fact that uh, it reduced mean infection by you know, somewhere between 44 and 99%. That's a pretty big range. But uh, Huge range. And that was for short exposures. And somewhere in that 24 to 94% range, well, that's like a 70% shift there, but it, uh, using this... Uh, Probabilistic. Model, yeah, for these long exposures. You know, it's funny because there were some reports that 15 minutes, you know, was kind of this number. If you were around somebody for 15 minutes or greater that your risk went up. So but, you better not get COVID. I'm screwed. Yeah, we're just sitting here. We'll get this under nine minutes <laughs> to try and get but this done. They, they say that this long exposure was a scenario where they tried to represent a healthcare setting. But the best part about this article, 
they actually explained the differences in efficacy of non-traditional materials. Yeah. And I tried this, you know, they get the vacuum cleaner bags and uh, were most effective. I I didn't realize it was ones that hadn't been used. <laughs> and So uh, now he has ARDS related to the dust. Yeah, it was all this lint I sucked in. I should have I should have got a brand new one, but um, but they were considered most effective uh, when new, and uh, and scarves were least effective. So this wrapping a scarf around your face not as good. And again, back at the beginning of this, uh, that was one of the things. Like, oh yeah, just wear a scarf. Said the CDC. Whoops. Well, scarf or bandana. I don't know if they're. I guess yeah, it was we'll bandana. Have... I think they said. But anyway, next one, Zoo et al. from Nature Medicine. I don't uh, think you say it like zoo, it's X-U. I don't know if somebody knows, please let us know at Katie Stangle at CatholicHealth.net. Anyway, so they looked at antibodies and seroprevalence of antibodies uh, in healthcare workers. 4% of healthcare workers and 3% of their families in Wuhan between March 9th and April 10th. They did find, though, that the further away from Wuhan you got the lower your ra- lower your rate of seropositivity. But they said that you should really get IgG and IgM because they said some individuals were only positive for that IgM. So it might actually be necessary to test for both when using, you know, antibody and checking for these rates of seroconversion. And trust me, at that time, people were trying to get as far away as possible. So, you know. Right, but... We don't even have IgM as an option in our order set, so we'll have to bring this journal article to the powers that be in Little Falls. So, because it's not us. No, and then there was uh, some of the things about testing and treatment by Cavalelli. Cavalli. 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 From and it's kind of a retrospective uh, cohort study from the Lancet Rheumatology, and uh, you know, every time I see somebody who talks about, uh, you know, tocilizumab. No, this is the interleukin. You're right. One receptor blocker. I just wanted to and say tocilizumab. Anakinra. And I always think it must be anaconda. Anaconda? Yeah, the, the snake. It's like, yeah, I got high-dose snake IV. No, it's uh, IV doses of anakinra. I wonder if it was developed from an anaconda. That's probably true. No, that's not. Um, so the, these people uh, had moderate to severe ARDS and hyperinflammation. And uh, they were kind of managing these non-invasive ventilation areas outside these ICUs, but they were treated with this high-dose uh, IV anakinra. And uh, it's interesting that they showed uh, that the low doses were not that helpful given sub-Q, but the higher dose uh, actually showed some improvements. Well, and they compared that to our favorite standard of care at that time, which was hydroxychloroquine and lopinavir, vitonavir, and that they did better, the, the interleukin-1 receptor blockers, the anakinra patients did better when it came to looking at non-invasive ventilation outside the ICU and I, uh, all of those markers. And yes, the low dose didn't do much, but the probability of bacteremia was actually equal between the, the two groups. And the probabil- probability of survival 21 days was higher. Higher in the anakinra. This was an observational Thing of 29 patients, so I, we do have to remember that. But more promise when we're switching to some of these more biologic-type medications versus the oldies, age yeah. drugs. And then in the Journal of Infection, uh, June 2020, uh, I don't know how you say this guy's name, Talalan? Talalan. Twilan. Yeah. 
He uh, kind of looked at the six different tests, point of care tests, and three of the ELISA tests, just to kind of see how sensitive these were. So, you know, basically you're looking at if you get a positive test or if you have the disease, what's the chance you have a positive test? And also the specificity, meaning you don't have the disease and your test is negative. So he was looking at the detection of these uh, antibodies between days one and greater than 15. So they were doing it at day one and then greater than 15 days of symptoms. And uh, interestingly, most of the tests uh, detected the antibodies at least in at least 50% of the samples by seven days. By already seven. Yeah. I wonder if those were more severe cases. Yeah, doesn't say. But it says nearly all the tests were positive for greater than 80% of samples after 15 days. So so obviously, uh, again, still we're testing later. Um, but uh, interestingly, these assays had a, a specificity uh, so, of less than 90%. So yeah, so, this greater than 10% false positive rate. So yeah. I wonder if those were antibodies to other coronaviruses. Because, yeah. you know, there are those other ones. That causes colds. So Anyway, next article, out of JAMA, uh, Whitaker. This, I mean, this is stuff we heard when we did the pediatric uh, echoes the other day, uh, the COVID echoes, um, looking at the difference between pediatric inflammatory multisystem syndrome basically the PIMS, compared to Kawasaki disease and this Kawasaki disease shock syndrome. Of the PIMS patients, 78% had evidence of current or prior SARS-CoV-2. 50% of those developed shock, 22% actually also met the definition for Kawasaki disease, and 14 developed the coronary artery dilatation or aneurysm. But what they noticed when comparing the the types, the PIMS versus the Kawasaki disease uh, spectrum, is that the PIMS cases were older and also had these higher levels of inflammatory biomarkers, which is what we've, you know, the last few weeks talking about the pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome have, you know, heard. So it, I think it's good when you do have some of these duplicative, duplicative studies that kind of confirm the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Say, so, yeah. I'm not sure. Duplicative. It just sounds good. Also yeah. in JAMA, next one. Yeah, so th- this was a study that was actually done on pregnant women. And uh, it's interesting because a lot of the stuff we've seen with pregnancy have been fairly small studies, you know, 10, 12, 15 people and, well, women. And uh, you know, didn't have many guys. <laughs> didn't have many guys who were going through pregnancy. But uh, it was just interesting that uh, this little bigger study, they had 82 people. And they had severe adverse maternal outcomes in 11%, which was nine people. Which is eleven percent is is scary because these you just assume would be younger without other health comorbidities. Four of these nine had mild symptoms. Five of the nine had severe. I found this also very interesting. Is that the C when they looked at C sections versus vaginal delivery, they went based on symptoms, and I, I guess that makes sense. Like if you're having severe respiratory distress, you're probably not going to be able to push a baby out. And so 100% of the women who had severe symptoms had to have a C-section. Only 10% with mild symptoms ended up with a C-section. And the ones who were more severe obviously ended up in the ICU, had more deterioration. And then the newborns were also more likely to to be admitted to the NICU. Um, But they did not, um, they, they didn't say specifically if there was vertical transmission, but five of the infants actually did test positive. Yeah, and they, some developed symptoms, but they all got better within 48 hours. So yeah. that's very interesting as well. 
I think so far they've really not felt there could be vertical. But, but I do think- you think that the, the infants got better at 48 hours because, you know, newborns don't have that obvious robust immune system. And so since a lot of COVID complications seem to be related more to the inflammatory response of the body, since babies can't make that yet, they don't get as bad as symptoms. Just guessing. I, when I first you know how read smart this, I just sounded no. Um, <laughs> when I first read this, I was kind of confused because it says pregnant women who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 in a Spanish court. No, it says cohort. Yeah, that's you know that's what that's what threw me off. The I Spanish thought. courts. Yeah, I was like Spanish court. No, a Spanish cohort. So, all right, the next one was actually from the Lancet Public Health, and uh, this was by Davis et al. Davies. Oh yeah, Davies. Whoops. Um, it wasn't Davy Jones because that would be the monkeys, but. And his last name would be Jones at Al. Oh, that's true. <laughs> he used a, a, a model to kind of, uh, kind of this transmission model. And it's really, this is kind of that whole thing about what do you shut down and when, and will you have to shut it down again? And so all, all this stuff, you know, with how many, you know, how many cases would you have had if you had not shut it down? And are we going to have to shut things down again as we hit these surges as it comes and goes? Yeah, and I that. I don't know, Dr. Bell, what do you think? I think we can shut down anything except the schools. <laughs> Again, that, that's so hard. But no, yeah, I think I think that idea has started to be realized more in our country because a lot of places have reached their peak. And then, like you mentioned, Arizona is having almost the second wave because they've opened up. So I think it's just putting that reality of this isn't going anywhere. Are we going to do a two-year thing like the Spanish flu in 1918? Hope not, but you know it's it's the reality. All right, uh, I think we're we're gonna go all the way to Farouz. I like from that. Uh, emerging infectious disease. This was from June tenth, twenty twenty, and this was a little thing about clusters of coronavirus in communities from Japan. I don't know if you read this one, Doctor Bell, but I did. I speak Japanese. Well, that's good. Yeah, I know that you do get some of the Japanese. Uh, journals and so they talked a little bit about uh, these clusters that they had in healthcare and other facilities, restaurants, bars, workplaces, and they actually, you know, contact tracing came up with these twenty-two probable primary case patients from this deal. Right, mm-hmm. nine of these people, which was not quite half, forty-one percent. Yeah, they were pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic when they made everybody sick. Now, wait, yeah, hold on, I don't know. We have have people in our building who think that you can't get sick from somebody who's asymptomatic. um, My question is, is did the WHO review this article? I don't know. But we're seeing it both ways, and this is pretty confusing. So this is one group that's uh, surmising that that these nine people actually caused these illnesses while they were pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. And again, from Dr. Nazca, what is asymptomatic? What's a symptom and what, yeah, and... The you know? next article from Respiratory Medicine, Gao et al., he's going to kind of agree with Farouz and basically saying that looking again at contact investigations with asymptomatic person with COVID, um, they did find that. Well, they said they, that, that some asymptomatic they people. some. I lied, so he's kind of the opposite of Farouz, that they said that no infections were detected by nucleic acid testing among the people that they said this person had been in contact with. Um, and so really kind of putting this, well, some asymptomatic people may actually be weakly infectious. And, you know, what about the asymptomatic? Like if you're saying weakly infectious, 
some people just don't complain. You know, the mm-hmm. male rates are higher because of the man flu. So like every little minor ache and pain and headache, mm-hmm. a man is going to report. Whereas <laughs> like a lady like myself, I am pretty much dying before I will complain that something is hurting. Well, you're causing me pain. So again, you just complained. There you go. Um, <laughs> so yeah. So again, this whole symptomatic, asymptomatic thing, uh, it's going to go on. But I think the reality, in, yeah, the reality in my life is that uh, better safe than sorry. And if right. you have people that are positive in a home, if you've got other people coming and going, that's probably not a bad idea. There you go. No, it is a bad idea. I caught you. I was wondering if you'd catch that. It's a bad idea. If you're positive, whether you're asymptomatic or symptomatic, I think at this point, a pound of caution. A pound, not coffee. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that more yeah, in a minute. But let's, let's be anyway, cautious. let's move on to Huntley in the... Systematic review that was done in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So they looked at 13 studies. This was a um, meta-analysis of 13 studies, 538 individuals to look at pregnancy complications of COVID. Maternal ICU admission in these 538 individuals occurred in 3% of cases. Maternal critical disease in 1.4%. No maternal deaths. So that's good. The neonatal death rate, however, was 0.3%. So presumably one baby died. Yes, one. But they don't really state how, but they do state that there's no vertical transmission. So presumably this neonate died from exposure after birth or from some other cause they didn't mention. Yeah. So let's move on to a preprint. And this was by Quickie. (laughs) Great name. Quickie ate at hell in June 9th, uh, 2020. I can't even say that without smiling. Um, so <laughs> Quickie at Al, uh, ate Al. Um, monitored the presence of viral RNA. And again, viral RNA does not mean that they're infected. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's an infection. It's just RNA and infectious virus among workers. So they monitor viral RNA and infectious virus among these workers. And this is at skilled nursing facilities in Colorado. So long-term care. Yeah. Anyway, but basically the the final point was that asymptomatic individuals infected with COVID may contribute to viral transmission within the workplace. So we're now a pro asymptomatic spread again. Yep. Two to one. Back and forth. Who knows? Uh, and then another preprint, and this was actually from Martinez and Sands on June 9th, twenty twenty, from Spain. No way. Uh, and I want you to say tocilizumab. Lizumab. Okay, so Everyone. they looked at 1,229 patients with COVID in Spain to disso- so determine, excuse me, the relationship to tocilizumab use and ICU admission and death. I like that word. Uh, so what happened with the tocilizumab group, Kurt? Well, they did have uh, decreased risk of death, and they also had decreased uh, ICU admission but or death among patients with like super high CRPs. Greater than 150. Yeah, which is pretty high. But there is really no association with the low rates of death or ICU admission among those with CRPs less than 150. I mean, 150 is pretty high. I don't know if I've ever seen one that high, honestly. But um, this just shows that our good friend Chris Hagen knew what he was talking about on Thursday. That's rare as well. (laughs) So, so yeah. So, interestingly, again, the most severe of the patients seem to do the best. So With? Tocilizumab. Good one. Tocilizumab. Mom. So uh, we're going to move on to uh, anesthesia and analgesia. Morcuendo. 
Marquende. Marquende at L. Oh, I love all these names. They're only like people with fancy names that get published. I'm screwed. The, bo- the bottom line of this study, which was uh, really talking about, you know, anesthesiologists and intensive care providers' exposures, right, in New York mm-hmm. City. So where, if they get sick, do they get the disease? And this is New York City. So when they finish this one up, it's like, well, most of the people that got sick, they figured came from the, the subway, 81% versus 41%. So more often, their their work-related exposures did not end up with COVID. If they had good PPE resources, there Correct. is that disclaimer. This hospital did have the resources. But that subway, most dangerous place in America. I wonder what the masking percentage on the subway was at that point. You know, when I eat on the subway here in Little Falls, I, I wear a mask. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> Subway in Little Falls. I can't even come up with like a good like quick at that. Like, like riding in the deer or what? Yeah, it's like, yep, I'm taking the subway to work. Okay, so another pediatric eval from pediatric pulmonology Zong Zhang at all. Gosh, these names. So they looked at another meta analysis. Forty six articles of five hundred and fifty one cases of COVID in children. Eight. Whoa, 18% of these kiddos were asymptomatic, but that they, they commented on the most common radiographical findings and CT findings, patchy consolidations, but only 33% of them, and ground glass opacities, only 28%. But the six patients that had the more severe um, needs that had inv- invasive medical, uh, invasive mechanical. Uh, ventilation and the one child who died all had major underlying medical conditions. Yep, just like adults. So. Oh gosh, another one about asymptomatic spread. Where do these keep coming? This is a public health policy and practice article from Public, public health, health Reports. Yeah, so Baguette. Baguette et al. Mm, makes me hungry. Yes, and so they did this. Uh, uh, the study really amongst the homeless population during the first six weeks that they were uh, doing this study, they had uh, about a third of people tested positive. And, uh, and it's interesting when they really looked at this closely, um, what they realized that, you know, that, that they really needed to shift from symptom-based screening to contact tracing and universal testing. Uh, and so their their whole big push was uh, a kind of adapting their model because often you're getting these um, that the fact that they didn't have symptoms was not not really the way to start testing because there were so many asymptomatic people. Bottom so, line, universal testing. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to Friday. So this this was a very interesting article, Sajadi et al. from JAMA Network Open. They looked at eight cities with substantial community spread of COVID were located along the same restricted latitude, even across different continents. They all had very consistent weather patterns with an average temperature of 5 to 11 Celsius, which we have converted to people who under, don't understand that, like myself, 41 to 51.8 degrees Fahrenheit and low humidity compared to 42 cities without this spread. So basically what they're saying is is that this does appear to have some weather modeling prediction with high risk of community spread in space and time. And so low humidity, the temp range between 41 and 51 is more risky. Interesting. So we're good until what? It's Minnesota. 
next week. <laughs> you know, if the spread is not as much outdoor when it's warm, you wonder if a place like Arizona where everybody's in air conditioning in buildings, that then the spread can still happen because it's cooler and there's no sun to kill it unless you're drinking bleach that's protecting you. No, don't, don't do um, that. So then just make sure nobody has a humidifier on. So that's interesting because in the fall when all it comes to be viral season again, you know, often like turn on a humidifier. But this year, don't do that. But most of the air conditioners in Arizona are probably not set to 41 to 51. Yeah. So the next study that was actually done in, uh, oh, the magazine. It's not a magazine. It's journal. the journal Infection. And uh, I like this one, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it's so often I get patients, I've had probably five now or six, that come in and they're like, hey, I already had it. I had it in April or whatever. Had these symptoms. And, you know, we still had influenza around. So we do an antibody. I've yet to have one of those be positive. Well, they did this study on a German university hospital group, and 21% of the people thought, yeah, I've already these had it. These were healthcare workers. Yeah, I've had it. I've been COVIDed. Um, <laughs> and uh, when they started testing them, uh, they found that only 1% to 2% had actually had a positive IgG. So mm. the reality is a lot of people think they may have had it, but uh, not yet. I was tested, remember? And you were negative. I was negative. So Kurt avoided the needle because he refused to get tested then. Yeah, didn't want that. Anyway, if we look at the next journal, Clinical Microbiology and Infection, Sen et al. looked at... Uh, about a little over a 1,000 patients with mild to moderate COVID in Wuhan in three different hospitals. Of the Over those four weeks, again, the progression, yada, yada, but the basic bottom line is kind of bizarre to me, but the things we already know, increasing age, male sex, hypertension, COPD, coronary artery disease, all higher likelihood of progression. Which we knew. We knew that. But a history of smoking was actually associated with a lower risk of produ- pro- progression. Yeah, more and more of that's been coming out. But, and- that's why I go for a run in the morning, quick, have a cigarette. But my question... No, I don't. Two questions to this um, group. Was there a difference between, you know, how many pack years of smoking? And then did they look at what caused the COPD? Because COPD was actually an increased risk. So as long as you were smoking but yet had not developed COPD, you were okay? I guess. So you had a time you're smoking. Time will tell. Didn't... Uh, I don't remember yeah. which button it is. Yeah, I don't know either. Okay, so more smoking. So next, No, no, next one. Oh, you're going to do the other smoking one. Well, I guess it's not a smoking one, but it's back to the COPD and asthma. So another journal of allergy and clinical immunology, um, Zoo et al., they looked at over almost 66,000 patients in the UK biobank. That's crazy. Yeah. But um, they looked at, again, the risk. Patients with asthma had a higher risk of getting more severe COVID than patients with COPD. Now, the risk was only 1.39 increased, but the risk was even greater, 1.82, if they had COPD and asthma. So, again, that's just... You know, there's been studies early on that said that the risk of death slash mortality was, was no different with asthmatics. So I, I find that So you were falsely reassured, and now you're not, because now was. you're older and have asthma. I just doubled up on my inhaler. Um, so last, I wouldn't necessarily do that. There's no proven benefit to that for people listening. Yeah, I know, but you really can't listen to Kurt. I'm winging it. I'm spritzing him some bleach. Um, so a couple left. Uh, this one was actually from the Lancet and uh, this was uh, this guy's name, Stringhini, 
uh, at I like L, that. June 2020. And so really this was a an interesting one where they they looked at you know the sensitivity and specificity of these uh, using the Bayesian method, whatever that is, and uh, serial prevalence over the first three weeks of this uh, of this survey. And when they looked at this, the serial positivity was uh, much lower uh, in five to nine year olds and those over the age of sixty five, uh, which is interesting. Uh, and they actually, with these calculations, when they're looking at serial prevalence decided there were actually over 11 cases for every reported case. So you've got a lot of people who tested positive that, again, did not complain or maybe had milder symptoms or toughed it out as compared to the people actually went and got tested and got reported. So a couple ways to look at that is, so it's obviously underreported, but then if you were to report all those cases, the risk of death and stuff would go down. down. So it's... You know, it's just interesting when you look at it that way. And I just want to say, you know, before we let Battle Legs take over, is that I'm really impressed with you having wiped down our table today with, what is it, Lysol I'm smelling? or I didn't do that. I didn't wipe the table down. So what? what's that? What? What's in that cup over there? Well, that's Diet Mountain Dew. No, I'm pretty sure that looks like Lysol, Kurt. I'm not letting you look. Um, I'm no. not going to smell your cup. But that just brings us to the very last article here that they have noticed if you do an internet survey of all these U.S. adults that, yes, it's important to disinfect and clean, but you still need to be safe. So yeah. don't do what Kurt does. Don't drink the lemon Lysol. Yeah, it's they not said, lemonade. Uh, 39% of people reported high-risk practices to prevent it, such as washing food with bleach, applying products to your bare skin, bad plan, and intentionally inhaling or ingesting project, different products. products. Yeah. So, so yeah, don't be drinking that stuff. That is a, inhaling it. Yeah, that's a inter, internet scam. Fake news. Fake news. Don't do it. Don't do it. All right, but what we should do is let battle legs get going, and we will check back again on Tuesday with the next COVID echo. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Happy birthday, Kurt. Well, it's all for me, Grog. Me jolly, jolly Grog. It's all for my beer and tobacco. For I spent all me tin with the lassies drinking gin. Far across the western ocean I must wander. Where are me boots? Me nugget, nugget boots. They're all gone for beer and tobacco. Shirt, me nugget, nugget shirt. It's all gone for beer and tobacco. And the color is all worn. The sleeves they all are torn. The tails are looking out for better weather. And it's all for me, God. Jolly, jolly, God. It's all for my beer and tobacco. For I spent all me tail with the lassies drinking gin. Far across the western ocean, I must And I have